Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard, or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individual. Enjoy. Well, thanks for joining us. Today we're going to go ahead and continue our discussion about diet, nutrition, and metabolism. Once again, looking at does it really matter what's being eaten? And in this case here, we're going to talk a little about carbohydrates today. Hopefully look at some of the myths and misconceptions that we have about carbohydrates. And then we'll talk specifically about one form of carbohydrate dieting as relates to a concept known as carbohydrate loading. So let's talk a little about carbohydrates and how much carbohydrate we're going to need within our diet. For most individuals, we're going to need between 2.5 and 5 grams per kilogram of body mass per day of carbohydrates. Within that, we're going to need a minimum of 120 grams per day for normal neuron functions to take place. For our athletes and people who are highly active, we can go ahead and get upwards of 5 to 10 grams per kilogram of body mass per day. Within that, amount. Post-training or post-competition, we're going to need to consume between 0.8 and 1 gram per kilogram of body mass for every hour that we were active. Additionally, we're going to need to have about 30 grams per day of a specific type of carbohydrate known as fiber. Now, there are some dietary restrictions where we can consume carbohydrates outside of that range, and we'll take a look at those as we go through our discussion, but those are the normal values that we give for individuals. Now, sometimes when we talk about carbohydrates, and particularly when we're talking about dietary carbohydrates, we hear a lot of references of good carbs and bad carbs. And what does that mean to be a good carb or a bad carb? Well, metabolically, there's no such thing as good carb, bad carb. Carbohydrates are carbohydrates and will be used on a whole host of metabolic functions for the body. When we're talking about good carb and bad carb, what we're really referencing is how does the carbohydrate that we're looking at fit within what's referenced as the glycemic index. And what the glycemic index is doing is it's giving us an indication of what is going to be the insulin response that occurs following the consumption of those carbohydrates and what is the rate of digestion and absorption of those carbohydrates. That is how soon after a meal will I see those carbohydrates in circulation. And this is where within the glycemic index, we will have references of foods that are high glycemic foods, medium glycemic foods, and low glycemic foods. This is the indication of what other carbohydrates besides what are usually referred to as simple carbohydrates will be found within the foods that are being consumed, where foods that are high have a high rate of digestion and absorption and will cause an insulin spike to occur due to the effects that the rapid absorption of the carbohydrates have on insulin functions and insulin signals in the body. Which takes us to a question as it relates to the dietary carbohydrates. Are all the dietary carbohydrates made equally? And once again, this goes into our good carb, bad carb misconception, where we look at carbohydrates or sugars as being simple or complex. The simple carbohydrates or the simple sugars 
will sometimes also be referenced as monosaccharides, that is a single sugar unit. And the principal single sugar units that we talk about dietarily are glucose, fructose, and galactose. There are other simple sugars, but those are the three principal simple sugars that we look at in terms of the monosaccharides. Now those monosaccharides can interact with each other to make larger simple sugars, which are sometimes referred to as disaccharides. The disaccharides include sucrose, which is also referred to as table sugar, and that is a glucose and a fructose that's combined. Or we can get a simple sugar known as maltose, and maltose are two glucose sugars put together. And then within a lot of the uh, dairy products that we will consume, we will get a sugar known as lactose, and lactose is a glucose and a galactose stuck together. Now all of those disaccharides will get broken down digestively within the intestines into their glucose, their fructose, and their galactose units. With the exception of lactose for those people who don't happen to have the enzyme lactase available to them. And those are the individuals who will be lactose intolerant. Beyond the simple sugars, we now get to what's referred to as the complex carbohydrates or the complex sugars. The complex carbohydrates are going to be more delayed in their absorption because it's going to take a little bit longer to digest them down. And these are going to be things like cellulose, sometimes referred to as fiber, glycogen, and amylose. Amylose will sometimes be referred to as starch. And then slightly smaller complex carbohydrates like dextrin or pectin. Now, all of these complex carbohydrates will get broken down into smaller sugar units and then eventually into their monosaccharide units in order to be absorbed because the way in which we absorb the sugars is we absorb the sugars, we absorb the carbohydrates as their single sugar units and sometimes as a disaccharide. But more often than not, we will absorb it as a single sugar unit. Those complex carbohydrates, when they get their digestion taking place, will break down into the disaccharide and then into the monosaccharide. And when they break down into the disaccharide and the monosaccharide, we will then be able to absorb them within the intestines with the exception of fiber, with the exception of cellulose because we do not have the enzymes to break down that sugar. Now, the microbes in our intestines do have the ability to break down that sugar. And as a byproduct of their breakdown, we will get some other key nutrients that we would not be able to get without consuming the fiber within the diet. Fiber within the diet is essential for normal gastrointestinal functions. Consuming larger amounts of complex carbohydrates will lower my overall glycemic index of sugars being consumed. Continuing on with the idea about the dietary carbohydrates, there's a few other myths and misconceptions out there about carbohydrates and carbohydrates in the diet. One of those is, what about the issue of the person or myself becoming fat because I'm eating dietary carbohydrates? Well, this is what we have to remember is that carbohydrates in the diet will be used for a whole host of other things within the body beyond just the energetic materials that we talk about, the use of the carbohydrates for regenerating ATP or the storing of those carbohydrates for later use as lipids. We will use those carbohydrates in other pathways 
such as making some of the sugars necessary for making DNA, or making RNA, or becoming some of the metabolites involved with producing amino acids that will allow for the production of proteins, or for making ketone bodies. One of the other myths and misconceptions out there is that consuming carbohydrates will automatically lead to an insulin spike, which is where we get the idea of having a sugar rush followed by a sugar crash that a lot of people will talk about. This is where we, once again, we have to go back to the science and to the physiology. Insulin is only going to be involved with moving glucose from the bloodstream into the cells by metabolizing or activating one glucose transport, one membrane protein to allow for glucose to move from the bloodstream into the cells, and only in a couple of types of cells, skeletal muscle, adipose cells, and liver cells. And it's only going to do this when there is a consumption of glucose that is greater than 1 to 1.2 grams per kilogram per hour within the meal that I'm consuming. Now, there are times where I can have high levels of glucose in the bloodstream, which can lead to insulin being released from the pancreas. But when we're looking specifically at the dietary components going on, it's about the concentration of the glucose that is being consumed. There are other carbohydrates that we'll be consuming that will be able to move into the cells without needing the insulin. Now, insulin does promote making of lipids, lipid synthesis. It's one of the many pathways within the cells that insulin will activate, will trigger. But it will also trigger protein growth, protein synthesis. It will also trigger glycogen synthesis, making of glycogen within the tissues that are able to make glycogen, in particular skeletal muscle and liver cells. The one carbohydrate that we do know that actually does instigate lipid synthesis within cells that comes from the diet is increased amounts of fructose. Fructose will trigger lipid production, lipid synthesis, independent of any hormone signals within the adipocytes, within the adipose cells of the body leading to fat accumulation. When fructose is in excess and not being cleared to be used within other metabolic pathways. Other myths and misconceptions as it relates to carbohydrates and carbohydrates in the diet is the misconception of a low carbohydrate diet being a no carbohydrate diet. The low carbohydrate diets are not a no carbohydrate diet. What the low carbohydrate diets are doing is they're attempting to get the person who's going to follow that diet scheme to shift from the high glycemic indexed carbohydrates to the low glycemic indexed carbohydrates and then reduce the total amount of carbohydrates that are being consumed within the overall diet. This is where the persons who are following this diet schematic may reduce their total carbohydrate intake to be the minimums necessary in order to maintain normal metabolic functions and normal neuron activities, meaning they are getting the 120 grams per day. There are, there are some 
of the low carbohydrate diet that will have the persons consume less than that minimum. And in order to make the minimums, the body will undergo different chemical reactions predominantly within the liver where it will take glucose metabolites that are coming from other molecules, namely amino acids and lipid byproducts, and will convert those glucose metabolites back into glucose so that the body is able to meet the minimum necessary for normal metabolic and neuronal functions. Within that low carbohydrate, there is a couple of things that we need to be aware of. First, there's no standard definition for what a low carbohydrate diet means. I just gave you a, an analogy of eating less than the minimum 120. That seems to be the threshold for the low carbohydrates. However, some low carbohydrate diets can take the person as low as 10 to 50 grams of carbohydrates total in a day, while others would be considered low carbohydrates if they're consuming below the 2.5 grams per kilogram of body mass per day. However, there are some indications for standardizations as it relates to what is labeled as a net carbohydrate if you happen to be looking at any of the packaging for the low carbohydrate materials within the grocery stores. The net carbohydrates is the indication of how many carbohydrates are digestible, absorbable, and metabolically active for the body. And it's determined by taking the total amount of carbohydrates that are available within the foods of that package and subtracting the amount of fiber and the amount of sugar alcohols that are available. And that's because when we look at the total carbohydrates within a package of food for serving, we're looking at all forms of carbohydrates, whether it's the sugars that we think about in terms of sugar, sucrose, table sugar, or lactose if it happens to be milk product, as well as the fiber, as well as any of the other sugar alcohols that we cannot metabolize. And in order to find the net carbohydrates, how many total carbohydrates are available within that food, we take the ones that we can metabolize and we pull them out from the total amount of carbohydrates that are there. And we do that by taking the total carbohydrates and subtracting the fiber and the sugar alcohols that are there. Now, people who are active, whether it is physically active or mentally active, you happen to be a student, you need more carbohydrates than someone who is less active, whether they are physically sedentarily not doing anything or not mentally engaged with a lot of learning. Those who are active need more carbohydrates than those who are less active. If I am trying to learn, and if I'm trying to be active, reducing the amount of carbohydrates I have within my diet will limit my overall performance, regardless of what my, what my performance happens to be. And that's because I'm gonna need carbohydrates for my neurons to function and for other cells within the body, which are referenced as being glucose-obligated cells, to work at their optimal performance. And so by restricting carbohydrates, I restrict the fuel sources that are available to those cells, which means those cells will not function at the rate that we're asking them to function, 
and can lead to a detrimental performance if I'm not fueling them correctly. So speaking of that, what are carbohydrates going to be used for? Well, they are going to be used for the fuel sources. They are a primary principal fuel source that our cells use for all of their energetic metabolism, making of ATP or regenerating ATP for the cell, for the cell to continue to do what it needs to do. It's not the only fuel source, but it is a principal primary fuel source. Other fuel sources that could be used include amino acids and lipids. Within the energetic pathways, the ability to use those other fuel sources leads to a concept known as metabolic flexibility. Metabolic flexibility is the indication of the ability to use multiple fuel, so multiple fuel sources in order to meet the demands for ATP by the cells and tissues during the events that I need ATP, if I am not feeling well, if I have inflammation, the ability for me to be metabolically flexible drops. However, I'm going to be sending signals to attempt to cause glucose to be spared so that the cells of the blood, in particular the immune cells, have the glucose available to them so that they're able to do the metabolism that they need to do in order to make me feel better. Outside of fuel, carbohydrates will be used to make amino acids, to make nucleic acids, to make neurotransmitters. They will be involved with the production of lipids. They are integral to cell membrane integrity and they are used in order to allow cells to adhere to each other in a cell-to-cell -cell adhesion or cell junction that are used within the tissues of the body. There is a specific carbohydrate, citrate, that is necessary for normal bone health. Without that sugar within the bone matrix, our bones will become excessively brittle. And so we need carbohydrates for bone health. We need carbohydrates for cell membrane integrity. We need carbohydrates for fuel sources. We need carbohydrates in order to make things. Just because I'm having carbohydrates in my diet does not necessarily going to mean that I'm going to become fat, even though that is how a lot of people will present carbohydrates within the diet. So before we move on and discuss carbohydrate loading, Let's take a step back and look at some of the take-home messages that we have about carbohydrates. We need carbohydrates to have normal metabolic actions and normal metabolic functions. If I'm missing carbohydrates from my diet, my body is going to develop those carbohydrates from the molecules that I'm getting in my diet that are not carbohydrates or from the tissues of my body. Carbohydrate intake does not automatically cause one to become fat even though that is how a lot of people oppose the positions that they have about carbohydrates in the diet. Remember, carbohydrates come in multiple forms, and the idea of good and bad carbohydrates is coming from the glycemic index and not coming from how we're going to metabolize those carbohydrates for use in the body. Speaking of use, 
Let's take a look at one specific type of carbohydrate dieting known as carbohydrate loading. And carbohydrate loading is a little bit more complex than just increasing how much pasta I'm going to eat before I go for a run or how many potatoes I'm going to eat in a meal. It's a way in which we can diet so as to allow for our body to store a little bit more carbohydrates in the form of glycogen. And so what is carbohydrate loading? Carbohydrate loading is a dietary plan that was first proposed and first devised in the late 1960s, specifically for endurance athletes, where it was noted that those who followed a lower carbohydrate diet for several days saw a depletion in muscle glycogen stores and a reduction in endurance capacities and abilities, where Following a higher carbohydrate intake for several days after a low carbohydrate intake led to a supercompensation of muscle glycogen stores that led to prolonged endurance capacity. What this dietary modification is aiming to do is it's aiming to maximize glycogen stores in the body, where normally we will have between 600 grams and 1,000 grams of our total body weight in the form of glycogen. Of this, about 600 grams will be found throughout all of the skeletal muscles of the body, and between 2 and 400 grams will be found specifically within the liver. While it was first proposed for endurance athletes, we have expanded this idea to other applications for power athletes and for weightlifters, for athletes who are in bodybuilding or in fitness aesthetics competitions and into the realm of healthcare. What's the physiology of carbohydrate loading and that would allow it to work? What the carbohydrate loading is doing is it's gonna trigger signals within the body that's gonna indicate the need to spare glucose. Sparing glucose is a hormonal response that is going to shift, to change, the fuel sources used by the tissues of the body away from glucose to other fuel sources, lipids, amino acids, to meet the energy demands for the activities that are being conducted. The carbohydrate loading and the glucose sparing events that take place limit both hyper and hypoglycemic events that can occur within inflammatory responses by allowing for normal metabolic flexibility to occur within the tissues of the body. It also allows for immune cells to function at greater efficiencies with the glucose that is available to them. The supercompensation that we see with glycogen store can allow up to twice as much normal glycogen capacity spread between skeletal muscle and the liver. What is interesting is that there is some evidence to support this supercompensation taking place without the need to fully deplete or strip away glycogen. So how does this take place? What is this process by which we're able to get this supercompensation? What ends up happening is that during a depletion stress, glycogen stores will be depleted. They will be reduced. That reduction will trigger hormonal and metabolic signals within the tissues of the body to shift metabolic functions 
away from using glucose. When glucose is then reintroduced into the diet, instead of spontaneously reversing back to using glucose for the primary fuel source, the other fuel sources are still being used at a very high rate. And what this does is this allows for a reversal of glycogen storing where the depleted glycogen will begin to build on itself, taking back to a normal glycogen level. As glucose consumption continues to remain high, the hormonal and metabolic signals that were there from the depletion event continue to trigger compensation in the tissues to store additional glycogen so that should a secondary depletion event occur, additional glycogen is available for the body to minimize the need to do other metabolic pathways such as gluconeogenesis to convert glucose metabolites into glucose. Because of having an additional glycogen storage available for the body to use. What glycogen is, is it's a polymer chain. It's a long chain of several glucose monomers, several glucose sugar units stuck together and stored within skeletal muscle and the liver. When use of glucose starts to strip away availability of glucose, that supercompensated glycogen molecule or the normal glycogen molecule will then be broken up so as to provide glucose to the cells so that the cells are able to meet their fuel demand for needing to regenerate the ATP for the event that they are doing. So what is this going to do for the person doing the carbohydrate loading? For the endurance athletes, these supercompensated glycogen stores postpones fatigue and extends duration of exercise. It improves performance in time trials. That is, how long does it take for the person to cover a set distance? And it increases the workload that they can perform at following the supercompensation. For bodybuilders, for fitness athletes, for the aesthetic athlete, it's going to increase silhouette appearance. It's going to increase muscle growth without subcutaneous fluid retention, the appearance of being bloated. What this does is this allows for the muscles to look larger and the body to look larger without appearing to be bloated so as to show physique maximally. For weightlifters and for power athletes, it's going to increase the maximal strength within a one repetition max. It's going to delay fatigue when doing repeated repetitions. It's going to improve recovery and reduce the onset of delayed muscle soreness following a workout by limiting total amount of inflammation and breakdown of tissues to meet energetic demands. 
for the endurance athletes, we notice that this happens to be best compensated when the carbohydrate loading is done one to two days prior to competition. For bodybuilders or weight athletes or aesthetic athletes, this benefit is done when we see carbohydrate loading done in between a weigh-in and competition or during the tapering phase leading into competition. For the weightlifter, for the power athlete, for the gym person, the person going to the gym looking to have a carbohydrate loading benefit. This appears to be best if completed within an hour prior to. For the endurance athlete, for the weightlifter, and for the power athlete, there seems to be additional benefit if the supercompensated glycogen stores is also met with within competition consumption of carbohydrate as the Consumption of carbohydrate appears to limit onset of fatigue and reduction in perceived exertion. Now, what we have found out recently is that it's not just for the athletes and the exercisers. Carbohydrate loading for people who have metabolic diseases tends to reduce onset of hyper and hypoglycemia as well as reduction in overall metabolic stress. For individuals who are attempting to get body compositional changes, changes in fat mass and in fat-free mass, carbohydrate loading can be done in such a way as to increase fat oxidation and reduce total, total overall fat mass when combined with exercise in a weight loss protocol. Within the hospital, preoperative carbohydrate treatments have been associated with a reduction in hospital stay, an increase in well-being, a reduction in overall insulin resistance responses, improved body temperature within surgical procedures, and for lactating individuals, an improvement in breastfeeding. What has been noted for those who do a carbohydrate loading around surgeries is that there seems to be no difference in any post-operative and operative complication. And that has to deal with what happens to physiology with the exposure to the anesthesia, in particular with gastric reflux issues without having emptying. And we'll take a look at each one of these methods here in a second. So how do we go about doing carbohydrate loading? What's the what is the methods that we can go about in order to be able to carbohydrate load and carbohydrate load effectively? We're going to talk about a couple of methods here. This, these are not all the methods. These are just some of the, the more prominent methods. The first is what's referred to as the classical model or the classical method. This is the method that comes about from the research conducted by Alberg in the mid to late 1960s. 1967 is the uh, reference that is most often used. This method is going to follow a seven-day model of carbohydrate loading in which we have a three to four-day phase of depletion. And in depletion, what we're going to do is we're going to reduce carbohydrate intake 
and move carbohydrate intake from the high glycemic index sources to the low glycemic index sources. What this depletion does is it's going to shift metabolic functions at the tissues towards using non-carbohydrate fuel sources to meet energy demands to make ATP or to regenerate ATP in order to allow for activity to be conducted. As we go through the depletion phase, the athletes will begin to taper their level of activity. Tapering is going to reduce training intensities partially as a recovery effort leading into competition, but also due to the reduction in total amount of carbohydrates available to be used for higher intensity activities. We have to compensate for the reduction in the ability to do anaerobic metabolism, metabolism without needing oxygen in the cells that will be utilizing the glucose that's available to them. As we work through tapering, and as we get to the two to three days before an event, we then start the loading phase. And in the loading phase, we're going to increase carbohydrate intake, both in terms of the total amount of carbohydrates that are being consumed, moving towards that one to 1.2 grams per kilogram of body mass per hour, moving upwards into the 12 gram plus per kilogram of body mass per day in order to initiate hormonal responses, particularly from insulin, that will cause liver cells and skeletal muscle cells to start to store the extra glucose in the form of glycogen. And this is where we will get that supercompensation taking place, making the glycogen molecules bigger and more complex within the tissues at the end of the carbohydrate loading than we had at the beginning of the carbohydrate loading. That is one of the methods that's available. In the late 1990s, a researcher started looking at, do we have to be that onerous? Do we have to be that restrictive? Do we have to make sure that this carbohydrate loading takes place over multiple days with a depletion followed by a tapering, followed by the supercompensation, the loading phase? And through a series of uh, research, through a series of experiments, what the researcher found is that we can actually do this carbohydrate loading through a one-day depletion, one-day loading event. In the one-day depletion, the person will work at what's referred to as a supra-physiological level. That is, they're going to go above their maximal level by between 10 and 20% for an endurance session that will be then followed by repeated sprints at maximal intensity. That level of intensity in itself is enough to deplete the glycogen stores that are available to the athlete. If we follow that event with rest, recovery, and loading, we're able to get a supercompensation that is a 90% increase in glycogen depositing just within the skeletal muscle. There is a secondary method of training, which is sometimes referred to as train high, eat low, that is very similar to the depletion phase of the classical method and the one-day depletion method, in which the individual will train for multiple days at high intensity, but not super physiological, in a low carbohydrate state. That will lead to glycogen depletion. Once performance starts to be 
reduced because of the reduction in availability of carbohydrate. The individual then have a rest day or days that is going to be accompanied a loading phase, which will once again see glycogen stores supercompensate between a 1.9 and a 2.0 times normal storage. There is another method of carbohydrate loading that is done within people who are the aesthetic athletes, the fitness athletes, the bodybuilders, or for individuals who are attempting to lose weight, which is a cyclic carbohydrate loading, sometimes referred to as a backloading, in which the individual will be cycling between a low and then a normal carbohydrate intake. What's different from the backloading or from the cyclic carbohydrate loading is that they do not go into an excessive carbohydrate intake. During the low carbohydrate state, they will follow the normal depletion phase. They will do this for a number of weeks. At the end of the depletion or low carbohydrate cycle, they will then cycle with normal carbohydrate intake. What is indicated within the very small bit of research on this cyclic nature of carbohydrate loading is that there is a glycogen depletion and then a replenishment of glycogen that is not in excess of what we see with the normal classical model or with the depletion models, either the train high, eat low, or the one-day depletion. But we do see a replenishment in mild supercompensation. And the reason why we don't get a large supercompensation is because we do not go into excess with carbohydrate intake following this method. What we do see is we do see a reduction in overall fat mass, an increase in fat oxidation, the use of fats for fuel sources, and a normalization of metabolic flexibility for individuals who happen to have any type of metabolic syndrome, such as type 2 diabetes, and are attempting to use this type of method to lose weight. What is nice about this type of cyclic nature within the carbohydrate loading is that if I'm following a low carbohydrate diet, because of how restricted the diet happens to be, it's very hard to follow a low carbohydrate diet for an extended period of time. By utilizing the cyclic low normal fashion, what it allows the person to do is utilize a diet restriction in carbohydrates in periods that will maximize fat oxidation during the periods of restriction, but keep fat oxidation relatively high when carbohydrates are still available. What about the hospital? We talked about the use within the hospital in terms of preoperative conditions. In the preoperative condition, what we usually have is we usually have a fasting period leading into the surgical performance. The person having surgery usually will fast starting the evening before the surgery so that they reduce any materials within the intestines and within the stomach so as to reduce any type of complications that might come about from anesthetic exposure. What carbohydrate loading research has shown is that individuals who will, following the fasting window, consume a high carbohydrate drink a few hours prior to surgery do not have any type of adverse event coming about from consumption of the carbohydrate drink 
end up having faster recovery times following the surgical procedures. And for those individuals who, have, who will have a secondary high carbohydrate drink in a post-operative state and have any type of metabolic issues, do not see any type of insulin issue or hyperglycemic issue, high blood sugar issue, following the surgeries when consuming the high carbohydrate solutions, which is an indication that we have a way to help with recovery through utilization of carbohydrate in a preoperative and postoperative state, which leads to a question that we need to ask, particularly about the methods for carbohydrate loading outside of the hospital setting, which is, is there one method that's better than the other? And this is where we could get the normal physiological answer of yes, maybe, but probably no, or yes, but no. And the reason why it's going to be yes, but maybe no, is that it all depends upon what the individual goal happens to be for the person following the carbohydrate loading diet. What is the goal that you're setting out to do with the diet and exercise program? Where are you at within your training periodization? Within your training periodization, do you have the ability to have tapering taking place? Do you have the ability to follow the restrictions necessary to do the classical model? Or are you in a time crunch? If I am simply using it for workout purposes, then I usually don't have to worry about the tapering issue. However, if I'm an endurance athlete, then I have to worry about those tapering issues. If I am an aesthetic athlete, a bodybuilder or a fitness athlete, where am I at in my training cycle in terms of do I want to follow the classical model within my cut phase or am I going to be utilizing it very close to competition where I'm going to be utilizing that to maximize muscle girth in which I will follow a classical model or am I going to utilize it within other parts of the training cycle where I'm going to utilize maybe a train high, eat low, or utilizing a one-day depletion method. Now here's an interesting caveat on the carbohydrate loading, and it goes back to what we talked about in terms of neuron function. If I'm a student, carbohydrate loading could be something of benefit as it relates to test performance, and that's because neurons are going to be functioning off of glucose and glucose availability, which means that if I have glucose available and have more glucose available following a loading phase very similar to what a weightlifter or what someone in the gym or a power athlete might do, where I'm going to carbohydrate load 45 minutes an hour prior to an event, such as a test, I will have additional fuel source available to my neurons, which should allow them to function at higher capacity. Well, thanks for stopping by and thanks for listening. Hopefully you got some interesting tidbits. Hopefully we dispelled a few myths and misconceptions out there about carbohydrates and hormone responses to carbohydrate and how we can go about following distinct carbohydrate dieting patterns to maximize our performance and our overall health. Please stay tuned for more discussions on topics related to metabolism, health, physiology, and overall human performance.